Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, Devine Dial, hats off to you for managing WPVM-FM there in Asheville. And Robin Collier, thank you for airing it on Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. It's a good place to start. Today, my guest is Allie Kennedy. I met Allie a few months ago. She's part of a group of marketing people who work out of Boulder, Colorado, Top Fox Marketing. And Ali is the strategic director there, and she's also an artistic influencer there. And she brings a vast knowledge of the of the advertising, of the marketing world to many, many, many of her clients, to actually to all of them. That's her job. So I thought, why not have Ali on the show today? So Ali Kennedy, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start our conversation by having you reflect on something that I I know you enjoy because when you and I've talked about it, you brighten up. Why is language such an important part of your life? I really love language. I love words. I love reading. I think communication is the basis for absolutely everything we do. And there's visual communication, there's verbal and audio communication. What you say and how you say it is as important or sometimes even more important than the visual aspect of it. So I've always been drawn to writing, different genres of writing. I just... I love the written word and I love what it's capable of and the life that people can breathe into it. When you say you love the written word, does that mean you are intrigued by how the word ends up on the page? Does the method matter how it gets there? Can the written word simply be spoken and then written down? I am a copywriter, creative writer. And so the way I channel that is actually typing or or written. Certainly there's some people like you, Nabe, who are amazing at verbally communicating the written word. I find that I can communicate what I want perfectly on paper, whereas um, verbally I don't have the eloquence that I have when I have the time to sit and think with my thoughts and actually put them pen to paper. And by pen to paper, I mean fingers to keypad. So talk about the difference between the fingers and the keypad and pen to paper. And the reason I ask this, I was talking to a woman, her name is Eliza Santiago. She does um, social media in Manila. And Eliza was telling me that she collects pens. And she was telling me that you can get a pen for a dollar at the cheap store, or you can spend up to a half a million dollars on a pen. And the range is great. And the ink is also part of the pen culture as well. I was I was amazed by this. So what do you think is the difference between typing on the keyboard, which I love to do. I learned the keyboard is one of the greatest skills I have. Typing on the keyboard and putting it down on paper by way of the hand. 
I can't write fast enough to keep up with my thoughts. So if I have, you know, an inspiration, typing for me allows me to get it out without being hindered. One, I have crappy handwriting. (laughs) Two, I can't write fast enough. And if I do write fast enough, it's probably a little sloppy. So for me, it's the most direct route from my brain to the page. What would happen if you switch that and you slowed it down so that the priority became the turtle's pace rather than the rabbit's pace? How would that change the material that you generate? First of all, I'd be very slow at my job. (laughs) And in marketing and advertising, there's no time. There's no time to waste. There are no turtles. You've got to be a hare or you're going to be passed up. So I actually have been doing gratitude journaling It's stream of conscious, but there is something I I like about that. So there may be that it's a distinction between my personal life and my professional life that I err on the side of typing. I still value a handwritten card. Both my aunt and my grandmother were like ridiculous, not calligraphers, but just beautiful writers. And um, my aunt would write me. She, She worked for the State Department and was in all sorts of crazy places. And every line she would put, I think, a ruler or something under it. And I held on to those. There was something special about it. Same thing with my grandmother, although hers were beautiful looking, but a little harder to read. But I think there's formality to it that comes from typing on a keyboard versus when I freehand write. The reason I'm curious about this, I've been thinking a lot lately about how we approach these questions of generating the language needed in order to communicate something to somebody for some reason. And I've started to notice I have created categories for myself. You know, the category of the formal writing, which is I'm sitting down with a keyboard and I'm generating my material like I did when I typed on a regular typewriter. And then the less formal sloppy writing with the hand, and then even the less formal improvisational talking into a a recorder and then having it transcribed. And I've started to think, okay, maybe these categories need to have thinner walls. Maybe it's all related. And one feeds the other and the other feeds the other and it goes back and forth. And maybe there are no walls at all. Maybe it's just a tribal collection of of categories that are all sitting around the campfire, sharing the stories in whatever way they share, you know, and the stories lift up in the smoke and travel to the heavens. I think it's an interesting, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. I just, I've never felt the need to distinguish between the two. I didn't feel the need so much to distinguish between the two, but as I've talked to a lot of people, as I'm talking with you, I'm noticing the categories. And I'm also aware that I'm as well established in my categories as anybody else. I've just noticed that they exist and that I'm participating in them and that I'm segmenting them. And I'm starting to wonder, well, okay, that's okay. It works, but whoa, what else is out there? Well, that it does make me think because I do crossword puzzles. I love crossword puzzles. And it is very offensive to me to do it on a computer. Like there, I want the paper and I want it folded like so it's just my right size. <laughs> but that thing is done. And I'm one of those people. I break the rule. I use pen often to do my crossword puzzles. But I would not when they have the ones you can do electronically. I hate it. 
I think you're right. There is some psychology there. Why do you think you hate it so much? Because it is the flip. I don't know. There's something about the accessibility of being able to take it with me and sit with a cup of coffee or sit with a glass of wine and scribble out when I do things wrong. There's something about having to figure out when am I going up? When am I going down when it's on the computer? There's something that's organic and it it feels like mine and my time when I do it by hand. And I don't I don't know why, but yet conversely, I do the wordle many days um and that i don't have a problem with but again i think it's format that's such a short form of one word rather than um and i like to be able to check things off and make little marks it strikes me as you are talking we are of course discussing how we put things out and the relationships we have between the keyboard and the the pen or the pencil and the crosswords or the the copy you have to write where the stakes are high and everybody expects you to deliver. There's also the, the idea of the environment and our relationship to an environment. So as you sit on the couch with your crossword, your pen, pencil, or your glass of wine or your morning coffee, whatever it is, you are communing with your environment, the environment that you are inhabiting. Yes. And I am going to make a little bit of a leap here, but I wonder if the emanation of self, mm -hmm. the energetic field, in, reaches out into the environment. So sitting there with the, with the pen, which mm -hmm. I've come to think might be a Harry Potter magic wand, moving the pen, connecting mm -hmm. with the body, sipping the wine or the coffee sitting in the environment you are having a communal experience with the environment you're in so you're doing much more than doing a crossword puzzle it's very true and when i immediately what i thought of is i love doing crosswords on an airplane and it's because it's my time it's liminal time that nobody else can encroach on i can't do anything else in a beautiful way. Like I'm, I'm grateful that I can't do anything else. And so that's like prime crossword time. Which also brings up the idea of the authority one has over one's time, or as I like to say, the authorship of your own story. I am the authority or the author of, of the story. So a big issue we have in this culture is time and mm -hmm. the use of it and how much of what we are belongs to us and what belongs to others. That's a really good point. The work I do, everything involves writing. I find it interesting that so many people's jobs don't involve writing. Like, I can't imagine what I would do if I wasn't writing. <laughs> Your job, clearly you're passionate about it. It's a marketing job. It's an advertising job. I would love for you to tell your version of the advertising and marketing world. Explain it a bit. Talk about how you engage with it. Why is that important? We know language is important. Why, why, is, why is this kind of communication so important? Lots of reasons. One, I love being creative and I see it come out in my writing, but I even see it come out in things I do with my daughter. Like when the pandemic hit, I came up with Lily's 30 ideas and they were big things she, she had to do. I was like, we got to fill some time. I'm going to fill some time. It's creative expression. And it's for me, the way that I'm best able to articulate thoughts and communicate them to people. 
I love the aspect of persuasion that comes in in language and words. It always cracks me up that as a marketer, I fall for every marketing trick in the book. If I'm shopping and I'm in a cart and it says there's two left, I believe it, even though intellectually I know that is not true. So there's something fascinating to me. It's an expression of creativity. It's an expression of persuasion. My daughter came to me yesterday and she goes, mom, I laid it on so thick with my teacher. And I realized it was the power of how she communicated to her teacher that she was going to be late with her assignment, but she did it in a way where, you know, I really care about your class. And I, I love the ability (laughs) I hate to say to like manipulate things, but it's, it's powerful. Language is powerful to sway people's emotions, to get them to act, to get them to do things. You know, when I mentioned um, prior to, to we officially starting the interview that I worked at a film production company and they brought me on to help a message what the movie was about. So there's this great film, but how do we get people riled up and activated Um, And I think that's where communication and language is so important. So I'd like to say I use my powers for good, not evil. (laughs) It's kind of a game. It's a little bit of a game and it's a little bit of a challenge. And I love the ability of language to sway and to move and to inspire people. Manipulation is a word people are repelled by often. And yet when you think about our lives, We are manipulating all of the time. I have to manipulate the ingredients in order to make the recipe. I have to manipulate my schedule in order to fit everything in. So rearranging, putting together, framing. The painter manipulates the paint in order to create the image. And then the image communicates something to me, and I am... Uh, uh, changed, manipulated, moved around. So Mm -hmm. why do you think manipulation has gotten such a bad rap, especially with advertising? It's funny because truthfully, we all like to be manipulated, whether you realize it. And and I think manipulation, there's got to be another word for it. And I, I will think about that and come up with it. But I like that when I go buy a North Face jacket that I feel cool and I feel like I could go mountaineer some crazy mountain and have some wild outdoor adventure. Between you and me, I'm probably actually not going to do that. I am probably just going to wear my cute coat and my puffy jacket to walk around town. It's allowing us in ways, especially with marketing, to to live something that's aspirational. So to me, that's not ma- manipulation. It's infusing. Um, it's making me believe in something that makes me feel good. It's a different way of looking at something that makes it more special or more valuable to you. And we're talking also about our ability to communicate something that we hold dear, that we would like to present or give as a gift to someone else or maybe to a group, which brings up to me the spectrum from the lie to the truth and everything that is in between. Manipulation is also part of that conversation for you to talk about truth Mm -hmm. in marketing and how it has value for this communication, the persuasion that you're talking about. As a marketer, 
I have very strong ethics and integrity. I also understand there's liberties that are taken every day in how we present things. When if I say we're the leading, we're the preeminent, the global, they're just adjectives. And they're just things that make people feel good. I could conjure up so much by just talking about a recipe that I'm making or it brings things to life for people. And I don't think that's dishonest. I think people want to be sold, if you will, things. And I, I want you to make me think that the bike I'm about to buy is the coolest, the sleekest, the fastest, the most cutting edge. It feeds into a part of our psyche that I think we need. And just because I use fanciful words that spark the imagination doesn't mean it's a, a lie or it's not true. I would much rather get a present wrapped beautifully with edges perfectly trimmed and the bow perfect than I would get something wrapped in a brown paper bag. So to me, when I am marketing for our clients, I'm helping them put whatever their product or service it is into a beautiful package that makes somebody excited rather than a brown bag. To me, that's nothing to do with truth or untruth. It's presentation. And yet, if I'm telling the truth about what I'm doing and you package that, energetically speaking, one would hope it would ring true to the to the viewer. Plant a seed. You already have a preconceived expectation of what you're getting. And I think that does influence your enjoyment of or appreciation of or your value of whatever the product or service is. I think the world it likes to be marketed to. It's a much more fun <laughs> and uh, inspired way to live. You're also reminding me that often we undersell ourselves. And when you market yourself, one of the challenges you have to come up with ideas, points that you want to make to people that celebrate who you are as, as a person that genuinely offers someone uh, an inventory, if you will, of the things that you've done so often in our culture. And I wonder if this is true in the work that you do with Top Fox Marketing. Do you find that people haven't done the inventory of their, of their superlatives? It reminds me of, and I even did this, Nave, with, I believe we did this with you and um, your team at the Imaginative Storm, but messaging. I find every client I work with knows their product in and out. Where people fall short in terms of brands or services is they're always in the weeds. They always are in the details. What I love that marketers, good marketers can do is listen to all the, you know, extract, extract, extract. But at the end of the day, it all boils down to some pretty simple stuff. <laughs> like, what is your value proposition? What is your customer's pain point? And how does your product solve it? At the end of the day, it's really simple. So in doing this for, gosh, almost 30 years now, I have actually found it very easy to be able to filter out all the noise that our clients present us with and distill it down into its essence and then re rebuild it back up with the best words and the best ways to bring it to life for people. I think people get too convoluted in their messaging, especially with clients, because they know every detail of their business and they think every detail is important. I know as a consumer and as a marketer, they don't care. They just want to know what your product can do for them and that it can do it the best. 
in this modern time, digital space that we're in, the weeds, you said people get in the weeds around what they try to say to their customers. We're wandering in a rather large field of weeds. And weeds are the standard standard of our uh, existence. And what I mean by weeds is every time you turn around, you have this, you have that, you have this, you have that. So there's a fair amount of weeds in the field. And we're trying to figure out which weed or which message we want to present. Years ago, I had a pizza restaurant and it was a to-go restaurant. And we built it at the beach, Riceville Beach, North Carolina. It was called the Pizza Port. And the need was hunger. People were going to the beach and they were hungry, so they would buy pizza, take it to the beach to eat it, or they would return from surfing and they were hungry. They would stop, get a pizza and go home. It was very straightforward. We make pizzas. You're hungry. When you buy this pizza, you won't be hungry. The field didn't have very many weeds in it. It was very straightforward. Nowadays, there are a lot of weeds. So I think that's a real challenge for a marketer like you. How do you figure out which which weed to turn into a beautiful flower? Yeah. First of all, you have to know your target persona. You've got to know who your audience is. And the biggest mistake that I see clients unintentionally, they don't want to alienate anybody. So they want to appeal to everybody. That is the worst thing that you can do as a marketer. The best thing you can do is the riches are in the niches. <laughs> Go know who your audience is. It's never to the exclusion of anybody else, but it's you're talking to that person. So number one, if you understand who your target customer is, that right there narrows down the playing field of what you're talking about, how you're talking about it. Um, that's number one. Know your target personas. You can have more than one of them, but there should be maybe no more than three, <laughs> three or four. Number two, repetition. People say, oh God, I'm so sick of hearing. I'm like, the moment you're sick of you're hearing yourself say something is the moment it might is starting to stick with somebody else. So for example, social media advertising, I have to see an ad 12, 18 times before I take any action or do anything. So again, whereas people think, oh God, I'm being annoying. I'm sending too many emails. It's consistency not just consistency in terms of the tactics, but in terms of the, the language you're using. Find the right words and use them over and over and over again until you're sick of hearing yourself say them. That's when it's going to stick. Interesting. There's a line of shoes called Allbirds. And I saw at least 20 ads for Allbirds. I don't know how many. And they were all great ads that people were walking down the path or they were climbing in the trees or doing this or that with their shoes on. And the the shoes were made of, of natural fiber. So no rubber, no synthetic, none of that. And, and, you know, 20 times I was like, you know, I wonder. So I went to the site and I now own six pairs of all bird shoes. I, I wear I, them all the time. These Incas, Incas shoes. I was I marketed these on Facebook and Instagram for like four months now I'm obsessed with these shoes. I'd never heard of them before. I have them in multiple colors, multiple designs, and I'm a marketer. And I'm like, but I bought the, I bought the dang shoes and I love them. <laughs> so you and I are susceptible to this. And I suspect that we are, in some ways, I use the word in the best sense, ordinary. We're just people yeah. in the world consuming yeah. things. Now, I do want to track 
this, you said people want to make sure they don't alienate people. Implied in your comment, if you do this right, you will you will alienate people. Why is that valuable to not worry about? Because if you can't sell to your core, you can't sell to anybody. Once you get your core, I, I always say it's like concentric circles. There's pull through effects. So a great example would be like Lululemon. I live in Boulder, Colorado. Every other woman in the grocery store has got her Lulu at Lemon on. So she's my target audience. But then I noticed, well, there's a bunch of men wearing Lululemon. Like eh. the wives who are going or the partners who are going into Lulu are. And so it becomes this pull through thing. And then the husbands start to become aware of it. Oh, yeah, I'm wearing Lululemon. So to be effective as a brand, you can start to use campaigns. Once you've hit your, you've gotten your core, then you can do very, you could do campaigns for different niche audiences, but you have to have a loyal base or you will never be able to scale a business or stay in business. I used to have a theater business called Poetry Alive, and we fielded teams of poets around the country to perform assembly programs for students using theater and poetry as a way to present poetry so students would get excited about it and then feel motivated to study it. And we sold $500,000 a year worth of shows in the 80s. And it was, we had teams of poets running around all over the country. The fellow who did most of the marketing, I did some of it, but the fellow who did most of the marketing, his name was Bob Falls. And Bob always said, I am looking for the no. I want to find the no. I want to get somebody to say no. And I was like, what do you mean? You want to sell the shows? He said, yes. But if I can find the people in my cohort who are going to say no, the sooner I get to the no, the more opportunities I have to get to the yes. yes. And I thought, what a terrific way to look at something. And as a result, we sold a half a million dollars worth of shows a year in the 80s. Well, I often say this um, with clients who are struggling to express who they are. And I say, it's actually just as helpful or more so for you to tell me what you're not than for you to tell me what you are. Do you find that that works when people tell you what they're not? What would be some examples of somebody not being something? I mean, I could say, I am not eight feet tall. Uh, you're not a, you're not rigid. So your, your practice is not, it's not, it's not formulaic. There aren't boundaries on it. So things like words like those start to help me figure, okay, what's the opposite of that? So it's free form. It's creative. It's, it's not textbook. I'm also thinking about the idea of improvisation and free form and how I'm coming around to concluding, based on so many conversations I've had over the last couple of years, the idea of improvisational work and freeform work is deeply based in structure. It may not be as freeform and improvisational as people think it is. You and I can have this conversation. Now, one could say it's a freeform conversation, and yet you and I have been in this thinking for many, many, many years. So are we free-forming? Are we being improvisational? Or are we constructing tight offerings that have lots of form? And we can do that easily because we've done it so long, like musicians who can play with each other, even though they've never met before. 
It's unstructured structure. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think it's it's life experience and being able to pull all of that together and knowing how to take um, these different disparate experiences and ideas and actually form them into something. Nothing we're doing is truly just off the cuff or truly free form. It's informed by experiences. Which brings me around to this new phenomenon you and I touched on when we first met before we started this interview, chat GPT, artificial intelligence, versus the kind of intelligence you and I have, we've been describing, we're drawing from all of our sources, everything that we are, we are part of all that we have met. So in a sense, we're doing exactly the same thing as artificial intelligence does, we're drawing from the imaginative intelligence pool rather than the intelligence pool that's artificial created by humans for this intelligence called artificial intelligence or chat GPT to collate from. You said you aren't quite sure what to do with all of this. So I'd love for you to talk about artificial intelligence and how it's affecting your mindset as a dedicated writer? Oh, it's a toughie. So I have a handful of clients right now that are using artificial intelligence in their products or services. So one is a company that makes simulators using AI to help fighter pilots be um, prepared for the battle of the future. 10, 15 years from now, the battlefield is gonna look completely different than it does today. And how can we prepare our pilots today so that when, the, when it actually does exist, this new technologies, that they're ready. That to me is the, you know, such a brilliant example of the positive aspects of AI or pooling, you know, to come up with cures for cancer or diseases or, and having that collective, I think the collective intelligence of the world and the universe can be an amazing thing. Where it kills me is as a creative, it loses a piece of humanity for me, even though it's created by humanity. AI is just human thoughts, um, information, data that a machine can pull together so much faster than than we can. Where it bothers me or I get conflicted about it is we have artists who, you know, perfect their art and spend so much time and to know that something could be replicated or recreated, I worry about it devaluing the human creative mind. So good for science and technological advancements. And it pains me from a creative standpoint. It's no longer one person's ideas or expression of the ideas. It's the world's expression of them. And that to me feels diluted. It doesn't feel authentic. I wonder if these expressions we have are part of the collective consciousness anyway, so it do, they don't really belong to us. Maybe if we look at it like that, the pressure may lift a bit in terms of this encroachment that we don't understand. It's a bit like we're happy around the campfire. Gosh, I know everybody. We've been doing this retreat for 15 years, and and then suddenly a sound in the forest that we've never heard before crunch 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 at the edge of our our fire line and that's ai and we don't quite know what to do with it our collective consciousness may 
have may be always at play. That's why I'm thinking of imaginative intelligence as well as artificial intelligence. What are you doing with this new phenomenon? And how do you feel it's encroaching on your creativity? Does it make you less creative? Does it make you more engaged? Or do you relax a bit and say, well, I don't really have to write this copy. I can just ask Chad GPT to do it. So I do have one client right now that has invested pretty heavily in a AI um, copywriting software that is very sophisticated and I can't stand it. And this may be a personal preference. I find it's easier for me to write something from scratch than it is for me to take something and edit something somebody else has written. And find that with this software platform that does um, content creation for you. You give it parameters, you feed it, it gets smarter over time. It gets your message better and better as you teach it. But I find the process of teaching it it would be just as quick for me, I feel, and more enjoyable, frankly, <laughs> for me to just do it myself. So between you, me, and the light post, I'm not really using the writing software for the client. I'd rather write it myself than have something go scrape 50 articles from around the world. I'd rather do the research. So I don't know if that just makes me old school and a purist, um, or if a lot of the world shares that that sentiment, but. I'd rather do it myself because I know it'll be right and I know it'll be good. Well, artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. It's just become prominent in our awareness because of the chat GPT launch in late November of last mm -hmm. year. I'm wondering if as we adjust to this, we'll figure out how to use that system and how to collaborate with it creatively. Do you think that will happen for you? I do. I think I, I do, being aging myself, I do think it's partially generational that um, this will probably become second nature to my daughter won't even think twice about using it. And she will be able to use it in a much more sophisticated way. And she'll be able to manipulate it <laughs> to get what she needs out of it. I am in the, I'm going to call it the shoulder kind of generation of, yes, AI has been around for a long time, but it's ubiquitousness is it, like right now we're in a huge surge and it's, it's changing paradigms. And so I think my resistance to it as a marketer, I have to know about things and I have to, I have to know TikTok and I have to know, I make sure that I know enough <laughs> to be, um, to be a smart marketer and to be offering our clients the best services. Um, but I do think it will change over time as it becomes a natural part of our culture like Zoom. I mean, when I think back to being a kid and the thought that I could see somebody while I was talking to them on the phone was like the Jetsons. Oh, my God. You mean I'm going to always have to look good? I can't be a mess? Or So I have a feeling it will just become an ingrained part of life. And I'm just right on the cusp of the resistance movement. Well, I'm thinking as we're talking from the marketing point of view, the job of the marketer is to figure out how to communicate about a product in a truthful way, as we've said, that will motivate somebody to engage in the product and hopefully the brand, which is much more than the product, engage in the brand in a way that becomes meaningful for them. So the whole thing becomes a meaningful relationship 
your shoes, my shoes, whatever we have, the, the gear that I have around me. And so the, if the job of the marketer is to figure out how to motivate people to understand the essence of that relationship they have with a brand, then that essence is not something that can necessarily be replicated by AI. It's an emotional atmosphere that the, the buyer has. That said, it would seem to me using whatever tools one could use to get that message across would be appropriate for the marketing work, just like pre-Edward Bernays in public relations, when public relations was propaganda during World War I, if you owned a hardware store, you just put up a poster saying, you know, the, the hay is here, come buy it tomorrow. And now we don't put up a poster that says the hay is here. We do much more in terms of delivering those messages, creating the relationship with the brand. So you could test with fairly, with you could test fairly easily the difference between, say, copy you write and copy AI writes and see which one delivers the biggest result for mm -hmm. the customer. It wouldn't mm -hmm. be that hard to do. A, B, this one, this one, who bought more? I read once on Copyblogger, which is a well-established online platform that's been around for years, somebody did some research on dollar signs versus no dollar signs when you're giving the price. So the dollar sign with the price and the font at a at one size got less sales than no dollar sign and the font one size smaller. The, the sales were 20% more without the dollar sign. That's the kind of stuff I love about marketing, by the way. I know. I'm like, wow. That's so cool. <laughs> and, and it was tested. You, you say, here, here, here's, here are the, here's the math on it. So with AI, you have an opportunity to test these ideas with great ease, which brings me around to poetry. I am beginning to think the job of the poet is to work from the atmospheric sensibilities that exist in the psychology in the swamp of the psychology, those mysterious places that nobody knows about. AI can't get to them because nobody knows about them. They're just there, part of the cosmic dilemma, if you will. The mm -hmm. poet goes in and harvests those sensibilities and then generates material based on that. Now, maybe one day AI will have that, but I don't think AI will ever be human because it's not human. And okay. so the human atmosphere, the human psychology is a very different proposition. So while marketing is one thing, generating those poetic, beautiful tidbits, that's a very different proposition, two different camps. What that makes me think of is, and I'm gonna just, Van Gogh is my favorite artist. And I think Van Gogh is brilliant. Is it perfect? No, but it's from some, can somebody replicate it? Could AI replicate it? Absolutely. But the specialness of it came from a hand, a mind. And so I agree with you. I don't think AI will never truly match the human intelligence. So, you know, where can you use AI for human good? Can AI put together a bunch of words that sound pretty that make a poem? Yes. But does it have the same originality and 
and thought behind it that makes it truly special? I don't think so. I'm thinking about the human ability to communicate without speaking. Two people in a room, their heartbeats synchronize. A group of people in a room, their heartbeats synchronize. I'm also thinking of the many, many, many dimensions that exist beyond Earth, out in space, out in infinity. I suspect that those dimensions are so vast that no one could ever put a mathematical number on them. They're just infinite, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I think human beings, an ability to do, albeit small, we can intuit, we can sense mm -hmm. into those dimensions, the unseen. They're there. You look at the ocean. It looks like a flat body of water. What's underneath the ocean? Miles and miles of life, right? We don't see it, yet it's there. Mm -hmm. So artificial okay. intelligence will never have the human capacity to connect with that, that magic. And you know people who just seem like they understand magic. I don't know if the magic spell exists or not, but they certainly can set a tone, make a mood. It's almost as if they do it mysteriously with that Harry Potter wand, maybe, who knows? Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm finding this inquiry into artificial intelligence versus imaginative intelligence to offer us a great opportunity to contemplate our range as humans, not to worry so much about the scratching at the edge of the light around our campfire. The woods does make a noise. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. We're here. The noise is out there. The power that we have to actually connect with mm -hmm. that largesse is comforting to me. I love the way you just put that. So I was thinking when you were saying that you can like you can smell fear. You can glance across a room and you know what I'm thinking. I need help. I need rescuing. Human to human connections, it's both an external thing that the AI will never be able to compete with. And it's also, I think, the the intuitive ability, like you said, that's really smart. And when you think about it like that, and when you start thinking about that in respect to marketing, and you bring that sensibility to the client, mm -hmm. and the assumption that we have to make is an assumption of greatness. It's an mm -hmm. assumption of largesse. And greatness being the grand proposition, the great proposition, the great whole, which we are part of, implies that we participate in that greatness as a collective proposition. And I'm not greater than you. You're not greater than I am. In mathematics, you have greater and lesser. And a lot of this is mathematical. We do all these calculations looking across the room. I calculate mathematically if you're in trouble or not. It's a vast equation that I've just done in two seconds or a half a second even. We do have the opportunity to take a lot of comfort in our range as humans, our collective range. And that must suggest that we don't do it alone. Well, it's interesting on the flip side of all of this, one of my jobs as a marketer for the flight simulator AI that I mentioned before is 
pilots have great distrust for AI and for automation. They get off of autopilot and they want everything to be manual because there is a, a distrust. And so it's interesting just from a marketing standpoint of breaking down those barriers of what AI can and can't do, but it can be immensely helpful in high intensity situations. You're making me come around on AI. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to sell AI here. I'm just exploring this proposition. No, now, yeah. in that mistrust, that mistrust those pilots have, that mistrust is legitimate. It's legitimate because we are animals. Now, I know a lot of people think I'm not an animal. I'm not an animal. I'm a human. We are animals. We are humans and we're animals as well. And one of the benefits of being an animal is we are born with intuition. We are born with instinct. We are born with the ability to look across the room and intuit, to size up, to evaluate the situation and then act on it. So what happens? The pilots resist AI. If you let it do too much, it, it depletes your intuition. Um, well, I was going to say, it, it's interesting having to, it, it's like reverse marketing, giving the pilots in this example um, comfort in letting I, a, AI do what AI does really well and saving the things that require the intuition and the intuitiveness for the pilot to make decisions. That's been a challenge in the language that we've been writing to try and get you know, the Navy has a huge contract, but if their pilots don't want to use the technology. So I've been on the flip side of how do I message it so that they do trust it where it should be trusted. And it strikes me that the pilots need someone with skill to teach discernment. Yeah. How do I discern between my intuition, mm -hmm. my instincts, and this new tool that sits by my side? giving me information as well. And here we are back to authority. AI has no authority in the same way that a hammer or a screwdriver has no authority. It's just a tool that you have the authority over. You are the author of your environment. And the tools that you have are tools you use to create whatever it is you use. Blue paint, red paint. I'm going to use a, a napkin rather than a brush. I'm going to use AI now rather than a napkin. I have another client that's in pharmaceuticals and they are so grateful to not have to have their, to not be necessarily responsible for making sure the right drugs get in the right bottles that go to the right places, because that's a life or death situation as well. And I'm constantly touting the fact that they use AI to scan and verify and this gives a lot of people you know, comfort in the safety that comes from this client and their technology says we take out human error in the process. Well, this is all very, very interesting, and it has brought us to the top of our time together. So before we go, tell us how we can get in touch with you and connect with you more and Top Fox Marketing in Boulder. Yes. So we've got, we actually have foxes and little dens, a couple of places around the U.S. strategically located. Um, but the big lair is here in Boulder. And our web address is just www.topfoxmarketing.com. And I am Allie Kennedy. You can easily find me on our website um, and would love to 
answer any questions, help you solve any marketing challenges that you might have. We're really passionate over here and dedicated to our work and to our clients. And I'm just grateful that I got to talk to Nave today and be here, always stimulating conversations with this one. So this has been a real treat and pleasure. And Ali, I appreciate you being here as well. And just before we go, I will say that the project that I'm working with, Allegra Houston and I have been working on for the last couple of years called uh, the Imaginative Storm Project. We're working with Ali and crew, the top Fox marketing group in Boulder to help us uh, get that message out. So so we're we're right there with you and we appreciate all those foxes in the fox den. We go visit the foxes often and we appreciate it. So I appreciate you being on the call. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And there you go, my friends, my conversation with Allie Kennedy, one of the top foxes in Boulder, Colorado. I enjoyed this conversation with Allie because she reminded me how important it is for us to sense exactly what we want to make in the world, what we want to do, and then to figure out how we present that to the other people in the world. Then, of course, there's the contrast, the people who aren't able to do what they want to do or the people who don't allow themselves to do what they want to do. I'm now thinking of a poem by Edgar Lee Masters titled Fiddler Jones, who did exactly what he wanted to do. Fiddler Jones was a very happy guy. And then there's the other character in the poem, Cooney Potter, who did what he thought he was supposed to do. He was a grumpy sort of fellow who was always wanting to take his cows to market, whereas Fiddler Jones wanted to just play his fiddle. So what do you do? Take your cows to market or play your fiddle? Now, one could argue taking the cows to market is marketing because you've got to get them there and then sell them to the highest bidder. But also, one could argue that playing the fiddle is a kind of marketing. You're marketing the spirit of who you are rather than the cows in your pasture. So Fiddler Jones and Cooney Potter have a bit of a conflict. Spoon River Anthology is a book of poems with all kinds of characters who have gone on to the next dimension, but they're still still at it, trying to talk about what their lives were like. So here it is, Fiddler Jones. The earth keeps some vibration going there in your heart, and that is you. And if the people find you can fiddle, why, fiddle you must for all your life. What do you see, a harvest of clover or a meadow to walk through to the river? The winds and the corn. You rub your hands for beeves hereafter, ready for market, or else you hear the rustle of skirts like the girls when dancing at Little Grove. To Cooney Potter, a pillar of dust or whirling leaves meant ruinous drought. They looked to me like redhead Sammy, stepping it off to Tura Lura. How could I till my forty acres, not to speak of getting more, with a medley of horns, bassoons, and piccolos, stirred in my brain by crows and robins, and the creak of a windmill? Only these? And I never started to plow in my life that someone did not stop in the road and take me away to a dance or a picnic. Oh, I ended up with forty acres. I ended up with a broken fiddle and a broken laugh. A thousand memories and not a single regret. Fiddler Jones reminds us that when we do track the things we care about, we probably will end up with a whole lot fewer regrets and even a broken fiddle if we get lucky. So that's why 
when you market yourself, that's why when you present yourself to the world, that's why when you bring yourself out into the world so people can interact with you, it's really important to stay on that truth of your note like Fiddler Jones did. Now, you may love raising cattle. You might be the most enthusiastic cattle rancher on earth, and you might love raising cattle the same way that Fiddler Jones loved playing the fiddle. However, in Fiddler Jones, Cooney Potter did not seem to me, did not seem that he loved his, his farming life. Cooney Potter was always grumpy, and that whirling wind meant that he was going to be ruined rather than inspired to see the dance in front of him. So let's try, all of us, to at least be inspired to look for the dance and maybe even spot it as we go along the way. We have time for a couple of more little points before we arrive at the top of the hour. This first poem I would like to offer you stays on the theme of the pastoral essence of things. This is day 21 of my 100 days of poems, My Father's Bees. Once in Oracle, Arizona, a beekeeper told me that during the flowering season, a forager bee works itself to death in five weeks. When I was young, my father kept bees. He started his beekeeping hobby when a swarm wrapped around an apple tree. He shook his new bees into a bucket, dropped them into a hive. Two summers and five hives later, when I was 14, I'd often watch his bees launch from their hives out across the fields, working themselves to death, searching for the sweet nectar inside the flowers blooming on the hills. And the bees were doing exactly what the bees were supposed to be doing, looking for the nectar on the hills, and they worked themselves until they couldn't go anymore. So if you have that much strength, if that much power, that much juice in you to keep working, and if you have the need to find out where you're really coming from, and then when all that comes together, if you ever do want to take it to market, now you have a better sense of of what you need to do in order to get a, a better feel for the brand, who you are, how you represent yourself in the world. So that, my friends, brings us up to our time to say goodbye. So I'd like to thank you for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground, for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. This show is sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Project, imaginativestorm.com, for tips on how to make your writing better. I'd like to thank Devine Dial for managing WPVMFM. We appreciate it. Thank you, Robin Collier, for managing KCEI out of uh, Taos, New Mexico. And thank you most especially, Walter Parks, for our, our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you would like to get in touch with me, Nave at JamesNave.com. That's the best place to reach me. I would love to hear from you. I really do enjoy corresponding with people and finding out what's going on in your part of the world. So until we meet again, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. sees the ghost of Sam Cooke.
dressed in a tuxedo. His mouth is on the microphone singing, Darling, you send me. She slips out of her jeans into something sheer. Sam's oohs and ahs win her note by note in the seamless sound of the Miami sea. But this is January. The village. She wants to be 40 and finished with boyfriends who don't know how to tell her, Honey, there ain't nothing can ever change this love I have for you. Not that she can't take care of herself, but sometimes the touch of a man would just feel so good, like silk in warm rain. When she opens Angelica's door, the hostess with a gold lip ring points to a table for one by the window. 